The war in Ukraine continues as Russia conducts a major reorientation of its military objectives and NATO countries search for more ways to deepen the conflict with arms shipments, sanctions, and more. We'll also discuss the victory of workers in Staten Island who formed the first Amazon union in the United States, Martin Luther King's legacy 54 years after his assassination, and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's April 5th, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash Breakthrough News. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash The Socialist Program and subscribe. I'm Walter Smolarik here with Esther Averam and our host, Brian Becker. Nicole Roussel is out sick today. Esther Averam is the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground. You can check that out at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out the show, which comes out weekly on Fridays. So, Brian, let's start where we have been for many weeks now with the war in Ukraine, the latest developments with this unfolding global crisis. Yes, indeed. I mean, the war, of course, by itself would be a big enough topic to stay focused on it. But we also know, we know, and we've discussed here week after week, that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is not only a major event, of course, for those two countries, but it will and has already begun to reshape world politics. It's one of those sudden, sharp developments in global politics that will come to define the end of one era and the opening of a new era. And of course, we don't know, we have no crystal ball what is actually coming, but we do know that the period that lasted, say, with the dissolution or the breakup, the overthrow of the Soviet Union in 1991, 31 years ago, a period where Russia was for the first decade basically in shambles, its people profoundly impoverished, oligarchs taking over the economy. And then the second period where Russia got, in a way, back on its feet, that's where Putin assumed the leadership of the country, more or less, not consistently, but generally speaking. We also saw the rise of China in the 1990s, overcoming the profound legacy of underdevelopment that came from the period where China had been subjugated by Western imperial powers, the century of humiliation, as the Chinese call it. The 90s were a period where China's economic situation dramatically improved that was integrated into the world economy. Both Russia and China during the 1990s, the first decade of the 2000s, pursued a policy that was more or less appeasing the number one dominant unipolar power in the world. And of course, that would be the United States. Both Russia and China were more focused on their own development. In the case of China, the trajectory of overcoming underdevelopment for Russia, it was a matter of getting back on its feet. Under the leadership of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union between 1917 and 1991, the Soviet economy, or what had been at its core, the Russian economy, which had started at perhaps one-twelfth the size of the United States economy, rose to become the second largest economic, not to mention military power in the world. And so here, China and Russia were were rising. They were ascendant. And now we see a period where Russia has taken a decision, a fateful decision, that because of the endless expansion by the United States 
of NATO, a military alliance led by the United States, dominated by the United States, an endless expansion of NATO to the very borders of Russia, and the Russian government having come to the conclusion that the U.S. was committed to integrating Ukraine into NATO, and whether it was a formal member or a de facto member, that Ukraine would be a staging ground for advanced U.S. nuclear and conventional missiles on Russia's border. And it's a long border. It's 1,200 miles long. Russia came to the fateful decision that they were going to stop the U.S. expansion towards the east. They carried out this military invasion of Ukraine. The argument of the Russian government was that Ukraine's government basically not only abandoned its neutral status between east and west with the coup in 2014, but that essentially the subsequent Ukrainian governments have been nothing other than stooge governments or regimes that were basically a proxy for the United States as the United States escalated its militarization of Eastern and Central Europe and escalated its war drive against Russia. So now Russia has invaded. I think, and we've talked about the fact that this was not a big surprise to the United States. The Biden administration and Blinken in particular as Secretary of State, but also Jake Sullivan in their many, many pronouncements between December 2021 and the actual Russian invasion, February 24th, 2022, their statements were somewhat sanguine. They were not even sounding urgently alarmed about the prospects of a Russian invasion even as they predicted it. And it's been our argument that the United States put Russia into a corner. Russia decided to make this fateful decision to come out of the corner by invading Ukraine. And now, Walter, the world situation, the post-Soviet era is over. It's over. Lots of different people are talking about this, including Larry Fink, who is the CEO of BlackRock. We had an audio clip from him Last week, he says this period of the second stage of globalization is now over. Russia is in many ways, but not completely, but in many ways evicted from the world economy. But as we're talking, Walter and Esther, there is a clamor in the United States and in some of the European capitals to escalate the war in Ukraine such that it would impose, the West would not only impose more draconian sanctions, it's hard to think of what else they could do to Russia, but possibly to engage directly in the military operations. And when you think about the way the U.S. has pushed billions of dollars of weapons, more weapons into Ukraine in the past few months, and is now aiding and abetting other Eastern European countries, also NATO countries, arming them, preparing for a possible greater conflict. And at this moment, predictably, a hysteria breaks out that Russia is guilty of war crimes. Thus, there must be an escalation. Putin is a war criminal. He must be brought to The Hague to an international trial for war crimes, meaning, of course, the U.S. is now fully embracing and embarking on a policy of regime change as the undeclared but real policy of the United States. We're moving towards escalation, even as the situation on the ground in Ukraine has shifted in the last week. Absolutely. I think this is heading in the direction of even further escalation, which is so tremendously dangerous, not only for the people of Ukraine and the people of Russia, but for the people of the entire world, because this involves a clash, a global clash of nuclear armed powers. I mean, I would say that the most dangerous escalatory idea that's floating around out there and is being embraced by seriously powerful people is a no-fly zone. A no-fly zone is not just a decree that the U.S. issues and everyone obeys that you can't fly airplanes over Ukraine anymore. A no-fly zone is a military operation. It's a military operation where the U.S. Air Force or U.S. missile systems or air defense systems shoot down Russian jets and kill Russian pilots. In other words, it means that the United States engages in a war with Russia, and then the whole plan would just be a step away from nuclear war. In addition to the calls for a no-fly zone, another extremely dangerous idea that's out there is the direct 
transfer of tanks and fighter jets from NATO countries to Ukraine, that could also be interpreted as an act of war. I mean, if there are NATO fighter jets that fly from NATO bases in Eastern Europe or from Germany and into Ukraine, and then Ukrainian pilots get in those jets and fight a war against Russia, Russia may consider the bases, and in fact, they've indicated this publicly, might consider the bases from which those jets took off to be legitimate military targets. Again, you know, a, a pathway to World War III. One final piece of escalatory policy that's being embraced increasingly, especially as, you know, the accusations of war crimes continues to mount and be embraced and amplified and echoed by the media and by politicians in the Western countries is a a total and immediate oil and gas embargo carried out by the European countries. The United States has already imposed an oil embargo on Russia. That's music to the ears of the oil and gas capitalists, the fossil fuel capitalists of the United States, because it means that their corporations get to eat up Russian market share. But a, a full embargo was not imposed by most European countries, because Europe is much more heavily dependent on oil and gas imports from Russia. They've come out with a plan to drastically reduce their imports by the end of the year. But but now, as the drumbeat of escalation continues, there are renewed calls for an immediate embargo, which, which would have the effect of inducing an economic crisis, you know, not just deepening the economic crisis in Russia, but in all likelihood also inducing an economic crisis in Europe and perhaps the entire global capitalist economy. Walter, the, the big story right now in the media, and this is the basis for the escalatory rhetoric, is that the Russians committed unspeakable war crimes in the small city in the northwest of Ukraine called Buka, that the Ukrainian government says that the Russians committed mass murder there. There are bodies everywhere. Let's just talk about that, because obviously that's the number one headline right now in the news. Yeah, that's right. Buka, a suburb of Kiev, so far reports are that about 400 dead bodies have been found there. And right, what the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian military is claiming is that they were victims of a massacre by Russian forces. And now these mass graves are being discovered as Russian forces carry out a retreat or withdrawal or redeployment. The Russian government adamantly denies that. They say that this was a stage-managed provocation and something that was essentially invented in order to carry out exactly what we're talking about, the, the further escalation of the war. We don't know. We don't know at this point what really happened there. I mean, of course, in a war, it's extremely difficult to know for sure what's going on on the ground. You know, there could have been a massacre. It could have been also the case that after a month of intense fighting by two modern state militaries, that three or 400 people died in the fighting that took place over that period of time, as opposed to it being a, an organized sort of singular massacre as it's being portrayed in the media. But we don't know. We ultimately don't know. What we do know for sure is that the suffering and the violence and the extreme immiseration that's going on in Ukraine and, and also across the region will only intensify if the United States and its NATO allies further involve themselves in this conflict and make this conflict intractable and a peaceful resolution impossible. And we also have to recognize that this latest incident in Buka could be the latest in a series of controversial incidents that have happened during the war where the U.S. and NATO and Ukraine says one thing, Russia says another thing. And it's definitely part of a war of words, in addition to the hot war on the ground, in addition to the economic war that you're talking about. There's a definite propaganda war and the war for facts and history and and all of that happening right now. So, I mean, you may have seen Volodymyr Zelensky, the head of Ukraine, on the Grammys Sunday night. So this is the way that he's continued to be put in front of the American people to state his case in a way that Russian people, the Russian figures aren't allowed to do. They're continually removed from the air. And I wanted to say that, just run down really quick, some of the other disputed events that have happened during the war 
there was an attack on a theater. I'm not sure if it was Mariupol or not, but there were charges that this was a crime against humanity, that Russia said that they did not attack this theater. They had no reason to. It wasn't a military strategic, you know, point for them. There were charges that Russia attacked a maternity ward. And then later it was found that a woman interviewed afterward on this supposed attack was an actress, just like Zelensky is an actor. There were charges that, I don't know if you remember early on, that Russia fired on a nuclear plant, you know, basically committed kind of like a self-defeating and very destructive act of bombing a nuclear plant. There were charges that after border agents on Snake Island told an approaching Russian ship to go F yourself, that the Russians killed all of them. And then later it was found that, no, they were all alive. They weren't killed in retribution by saying, you know, by flipping the bird to them, whatever. And so there's just been a series of of incidents like this where civilians are supposedly targeted, but then Russia denies it. But these incidents, oh, and I can't forget the shooting of the journalist early on, American journalists, very popular journalists. And as it turns out, this happened in an area that Russia was not controlling. It was controlled by the Ukraine forces. And so that's still not solved. So anyway, these all these issues and incidents They are used to bring NATO, bring the U.S. further into the conflict and to escalate it rather than to come to some kind of resolution. Well, I think it's so important that we make mention of this because there is, of course, the fog of war. We've talked about that over and over again. If you're not there, the reports about what happened in a war are very, very uncertain. And very frequently, there's a misrepresentation of what's actually happened. So there has to be a healthy dose of skepticism. And it applies to all sides. It's not like the US creates propaganda and the Russians don't and vice versa. I mean, but people have to really keep their eyes focused on one, why is the war happening? How can the war come to an end? And recognize that the media accounts about atrocities are being used by different political forces to stimulate, to recommend, to advocate for a particular military and political policy. In this case, the escalation of the war in Ukraine and the imposition of additional sanctions that are, in essence, a declaration of war against Russia or a pretext to send even more and more U.S. weapons into Ukraine, something that's been happening ever since Obama left office at the beginning of 2017. And I also want to make it clear that, yes, there might have been a massacre. Yes, it might have been committed by the Russians, but we actually don't know. The Russian government spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, absolutely denies it. He demands that there should be a thorough, objective investigation. Buka, which is a northwest of Kiev in Ukraine, had actually been completely under the control of the Russian troops for more than a month since late February. And then in the recent period, in the last week, the Russians announced that they were leaving Buka as a consequence of progress made in the negotiations between the United States and Ukraine. So, You know, the Russians are looking, obviously, for a negotiated settlement here. They said we're we're moving out of parts of Ukraine because it's a a response to progress. Now, maybe it's because they're overextended militarily, that they're trying to regroup. They're focusing on the Donbass. They've already said that. We don't know all of their motivations, but they said that they were leaving this area last week as a consequence of improvements at the negotiating table. Then the Ukrainian government or forces within the Ukrainian military, and let's not forget that a significant portion, not all, not the majority, but a significant portion of the Ukrainian military establishment is also dominated by the far right, by the Azov Battalion and others. We know the Azov Battalion, who are admirers of Stefan Bandera, who fought along with Hitler in carrying out the genocide against Ukrainian Jews at the beginning of World War II. 
that these people have been integrated into Ukraine's National Guard. We also know that the Pentagon has directly provided weapons and training to the Azov Battalion. Just do a little bit of research on your own. You will see that that, in fact, is true. No, and not only that, there were also, I think, 10,000 like automatic weapons or other types of hand arms, probably more than that, given out just freely by the government to civilians. And at what point is a civilian not a civilian in a combat like this when you're handing out weapons and basically marshalling everyone to be a soldier? Right. So, I mean, that's just a point that I wanted to raise, too, because it's not really clear when the corporate media calls someone a civilian. How are they defining that? Well, that's important, too. We just again, we don't know. I mean, we do know with certainty that the U.S. in 2013 insisted John Kerry, supported by The Washington Post, supported by Hillary Clinton, not supported ultimately by President Obama, was demanding that Obama widen the war against Syria, go to war against Syria directly. And the reason for it, the pretext was they said the Assad government used chemical weapons against Syrian civilians. Now, we made this point over and over again, and we were in the streets organizing and against an expansion of the war. And ultimately, there was not an expansion of the war. Ultimately, public opinion was able to be mobilized and turn the tide. And Obama used public opinion as a way to step back and refuse to go forward. But here was the argument. Obama had said, we're not going into Syria unless Assad uses chemical weapons. That's a red line. And then John Kerry in the summer of 2013, and he was part of that faction of the ruling class that wanted an expanded U.S. war against Syria and against Russia, Kerry came and said, look, there was a chemical weapons attack. Civilians died in Syria. They crossed the red line. Now you, Obama, must do your duty and go to war against Syria. Now, it turns out that that was untrue. Those rumors were untrue. But for like three weeks, it dominated the news. The Syrian government used the one weapon, the one weapon that would invite a U.S. military intervention at a time when the Syrian government was actually winning the war against the U.S.-backed rebels, the al-Qaeda, al-Nusra Front, et cetera, et cetera, the Syrian government was presumably going to use the one weapon that would make Obama change his mind and intervene in Syria. It didn't make any sense on its face. And it turned out, even though the headlines were so hysterical and it took a lot to finally convince Obama not to go forward, it turned out that that was basically not true. In other words, there are staged attacks. Before the overthrow of Ceausescu in Romania, there was a big report about a massacre, and that became the rallying cry for the West to carry out the coup d'etat with the support of sectors of the Romanian military against the Ceausescu government. Now, it turned out not to be true. There's lots of pretexts. Gulf of Tonkin, 1964, North Vietnam carried out this atrocity and attacked U.S. sailors. Turned out not to be true. You're Gaddafi having, giving his soldiers Viagra so they could rape women. Yeah. Now, that sounds crazy, right? But that was a dominant part of the news cycle for many, many days before the U.S. started bombing Libya. And, you know, what's never talked about in the U.S. media And again, I'm saying this not because it doesn't mean that Russia didn't commit atrocities, but I'm just saying you can't really understand anything from the U.S. media because it functions as war propaganda. You know, in February 1991, the U.S. deliberately, deliberately dropped two precision bombs on an air raid shelter in Baghdad. It's called the Al-Amaria Air Raid Shelter or Bomb Shelter Number 25. Now, the U.S. knew that the children of the government officials, the Ba'athist Party, the children and the wives, basically, of government officials, they used Shelter 25 when there were bombing raids on Baghdad during the first Gulf War. So the U.S. dropped two precision bombs on Al-Amaria, and 408 people, all civilians, were burned alive in that air raid shelter. And the U.S. Air Force didn't deny it. It said that they used laser-guided smart bombs 
to destroy the air raid shelter. So the first bomb hit the doors. The second bomb went through the now open doors and everybody inside was incinerated. Now, the U.S. actually did that. Did the U.S. media ever make a big deal about that? Do Americans know about that? Talking about war crimes? No, they don't. At the end of the Iran-Iraq war, when the U.S. was putting the American flag on Kuwaiti oil tankers and it wanted to stop Iran from winning the war potentially in the Iran-Iraq war, the U.S. shot down an airliner, an Iranian civilian airliner. It was airline flight 655. The U.S. Vincennes naval vessel used a missile and shot down a civilian airliner and all 300 people who were on that airliner perished. And then shortly after, the Iranian government actually agreed to end the war. In other words, the U.S. was showing with Al-Amaria and with the downing of an Iranian civilian airliner that it was willing to do like all kinds of criminal acts and atrocities in order to succeed in its objectives at a particular moment. And again, the American people, if we were told, look what our government did or the government that speaks in our name did, they would be you know, disgusted. But the U.S. media just never talked about those things or always classified them as horrible mistakes or collateral damage, certainly not criminal conduct by U.S. government officials. And just to throw in a couple other examples of the selective outrage that the corporate media, that politicians have the ability to drum up or, or not drum up. I mean, think about what's been going on in Yemen for the past seven years by the United Nations own estimate, the world's worst humanitarian crisis. I mean, hundreds of civilians being killed is is a regular occurrence in the brutal Saudi-led war on the people of Yemen that involves both the direct killing of huge numbers of people and the imposition of mass starvation on civilians in Yemen using food as a weapon of war, starvation as a weapon of war. That's been going on for seven years, and yet there's no call for the king of Saudi Arabia to be hauled before a, a criminal court where, of course, he does belong. There's no calls for sanctions on Saudi Arabia. And in fact, Saudi Arabia remains one of the biggest recipients of U.S. military aid in the world. Israel, too. I mean, just last year, Israel killed hundreds of Palestinian civilians when it waged a two-week-long assault on Gaza. And these types of massacres in Gaza, Israel carries out, I mean, every few years. Again, a close ally of the United States, not demonized by the U.S. media, and in fact, the recipient of major U.S. economic and military assistance. So yeah, I mean, the way that human rights is used, utilized, abused by the people in power, by the U.S. war machine and the U.S. imperialist establishment is something that will be present in, in virtually every conflict in the world in one way or another. Right. And the fact that Human Rights Watch has jumped into the fray with its saying on Sunday that it has documented multiple instances of Russian forces violating the laws of war in its ongoing invasion of Ukraine, including raping and executing citizens. This is adding to this escalation. It's not really clear what type of investigation they're doing beyond just taking the word of Ukrainian officials. But like we said, we don't know what's happening. But these organizations like Human Rights Watch constantly give the veneer of respectability and balance and being objective. So we'll have to see what happens with this report, but that's adding fuel to the fire. One thing that is for sure is if you classify somebody as a war criminal, that sort of ends the prospects for negotiated settlement, doesn't it? And that's what I think the Buka events are all about. If you can characterize Putin as a war criminal, then you don't negotiate. And matter of fact, Zelensky will be deprived of any room to negotiate. The U.S. doesn't and NATO don't really want a negotiated settlement. They they want this war to keep going. You can read. I'm reading all the general interest newspapers, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, which is general interest plus. You know, you can see from the tone and tenor of the government officials named and the anonymous ones that they're all expecting a longer war. They're pumping in tons more weapons. The U.S. military budget's going to be wildly expanded. Other stocks might be, you know, going up and down with volatility, 
but the military contractor stocks are going up, up, up right now. They're quite content. And that's the purpose of generating the hysteria at any given moment is it makes it impossible to have cooler heads say, let's get back to the negotiating table. Because again, if you're dealing with Hitler, and that's the new sort of nomenclature that's being used for Putin, if you're dealing with Hitler, you don't negotiate, you try to destroy the enemy. I'm looking at Poland, Poland, which is a super right wing, the Law and Justice Party, you know, a really socially repugnant right wing party, very anti Russia. They want all out war. They want permission from the United States to use Russian former Soviet MiG pilots to go into Ukraine's airspace. Poland's prime minister is now attacking Germany because he says Germany, in the face of these war crimes committed by the Russians, is still importing natural gas and other energy from Russia. He's attacking Emmanuel Macron, who is trying to find a negotiated settlement. He said, this is the Polish prime minister, quote, how many times have you negotiated with Vladimir Putin? You do not negotiate with war criminals. You fight them. Yeah, this is what it's all about. If you can label Putin to be a war criminal, then you justify regime change as the dominant policy. You suspend and make impossible real negotiations. That's why we're very dubious when we hear reports about this or that massacre committed by Russians. Not that it couldn't have happened, but it's serving a political agenda by those in Europe, unlike Germany, who are hesitant or have been hesitant, those in, in Europe who really want to promote this war. And from our point of view, from the point of view of people who are in the anti-war movement, the peace movement, the social justice movement, I mean, we come back to the same, the same point that we've always come back to. We want peace in Ukraine. The question is, how do you get there? And you can discern the answer by looking, how did the war start? The war started when the U.S. government absolutely refused every effort by Russia to have a serious negotiation about Ukraine's status. Russia's demand that it be a neutral country, that it not be militarized, that it not be a staging ground for advanced weapons that target Russia, Russian cities and Russian political and military offices you know, with missiles that have a flight time of just a couple minutes, missiles that you really can't defend against. Instead of negotiating, the U.S. said no, no, and no once again, and instead pumped billions of more weapons into Ukraine, supported the Azov Battalion, uh, supported and trained them and gave them weapons. And so the U.S. created the crisis. It doesn't mean Russia is blameless. It doesn't mean we support the Russian invasion. But our point is, if you want peace, yeah, you can go ahead and condemn Russia. Yeah, you can go ahead and echo the U.S. media and say Putin is a war criminal. But that actually doesn't bring you closer to peace. That means that the war will go on. The only way there's going to be peace is for the U.S. to allow Zelensky and the others to come back to the negotiating table in good faith and come to an agreement that deals with Russia's very real and legitimate national security interests. So when we think about atrocities, inflammatory headlines, sensational news, language about war crimes and war criminals, just put it into perspective that this is coming from the same people who don't want a negotiated end of the war, which means that they really want the war to continue. Also, very important to me is the fact that another way of continuing to ratchet up the war is to ignore the legitimate concerns about Russia denazifying the country. I mean, I keep seeing reports that saying that this is just a cynical statement by Russia as an excuse to invade Ukraine when that ignores the history of Russia being invaded, not once, but twice, not even just twice, but a few times on its western border by Germany in World War II by Nazi forces. And the fact that the West has been, as you said, funding and giving support to the Ukrainian army, that includes Nazis within it. But 
what I wanted to say also is that by failing to recognize this history of the far right being infused within the army of Ukraine, it also fails to recognize the history of racism within Ukraine. And I think that that's very convenient for the press, the corporate media to keep ignoring. So I told you last week about Poland. You mentioned Poland and the far right government there detaining African students in detention camps. And some of them have been there for months. And the students interviewed said that they were frightened. They don't have any rights. Their phones have been taken away. But also when we look back at the treatment of Africans in Ukraine trying to leave, when we look back at the Maidan, there were Africans interviewed that I, I interviewed back during the Maidan, the coup that happened in 2014. And they said that African people were being slaughtered. They were being murdered by these roving Nazi, neo-Nazi forces, far-right forces on the Maidan. And because the corporate media has been really suppressing a lot of this information, they also aren't dealing with the history of racism in Ukraine. And I just connect this because if you can dismiss Putin's claim the need to denazify the country, then you dismiss or ignore 14,000 people killed since 2014 in eastern Ukraine by these same Ukrainian forces heavily infused with the far right. Then you ignore two years ago when Ukrainian fans unfurled a banner saying, you know, free Derek Chauvin, how Ukraine had to be suspended and admonished by FIFA for its fans attacking people of color, players of color, throwing bananas on the field. You know, this is history is going back to 2014 and even farther back from that to ignore and erase the real proof and evidence of racism in Ukraine and how that is conveniently being erased right now as the corporate media continues to try to support public sentiment for these increased attacks on Russia. And I know we talked last week about Poland detaining these students in these detention camps, but kind of like the second part of what came out last week was the fact that the Peace Corps, the U.S. Peace Corps on its own official website includes input from African-American volunteers. And one of the volunteers wrote on the official website, and it's still up, it is not uncommon for Ukrainians to refer to African-Americans as the N-word. Volunteers of color may be called a monkey or may see children's games with blackface. Being aware of the history of dehumanization for people of African descent may help inform where this comes from. It does not justify it. So this is on the official Peace Corps website and under the section about diversity and inclusion. So you know, I relate that to the fact that Biden has agreed to accept up to 100,000, you know, Ukrainian refugees here, of course, leapfrogging Haitians, El Salvadorans, Hondurans, other people who have been waiting or denied at our southern border. And so these are the kind of attitudes some of these people may have, but they are allowed to just come into the country. And we have as taxpayers, you know, as a black taxpayer, I'm helping to support that. One of the great tragedies about this entire past two months is that the Nazi forces, the Azov Battalion in Ukraine, who had been integrated by the state, by the government into different military units, but had a diminished political standing. They only got 2.1% of the vote in the last parliamentary elections. If anything, the war has now not denazified Ukraine, but in fact, given these Azov Battalion and the other far-right sectors a certain legitimacy that they're now defending Ukraine against the Russians, who they've always denounced and condemned, not only because Russia is a neighboring country, but because they say the Russians are a lesser people. In other words, it's infused with racial and racial supremacist ideas. Anyway, if anything, the Azov Battalion has a new legitimacy that's going to be an ongoing problem for the left. And of course, the Zelensky government and the earlier governments have banned leftist parties in Ukraine. The Communist Party of Ukraine was banned. It was made illegal after the February coup. And of course, at one time, that party had been the ruling party in Ukraine, or it's another iteration of the party. 
Anyway, many other left groups have also been suppressed. And also newspapers banned and shut down. Right. And, and former officials, including the former foreign minister of a, a more recent government, but many other officials, too, have been charged with treason. Of course, those were the political parties in Ukraine who actually favored neutrality for Ukraine and favored having good relations with Russia. Anyway, we will continue to follow this war, this story. Again, as we said in the beginning, we don't know how it ends, but we do know that the political constellation of forces that was brought into being after the overthrow of the Soviet Union the past 30 plus years, that period, that stage or wave of globalization and the politics that come with it, that has now ended, but we don't know yet what will take its place. Let's turn to the home front. Walter, big, unexpected victory for Amazon workers in New York City at the same time as Amazon workers were voting once again on whether to unionize or not in Bessemer, Alabama. That's right. I mean, really, really historic events happening. And I think indicates that the entire working class in the United States is in a mood to struggle, to fight, to stand up for their rights. Yeah, that's right. So in Staten Island, New York, the workers at an Amazon fulfillment center, the JFK 8 warehouse, voted by a margin of 2,654 to 2,131 to form a union. This is the Amazon Labor Union. This was founded by former Amazon worker named Chris Smalls, who was fired for organizing on the job. And it represents this grassroots insurgent challenge to the most powerful corporation on the planet, probably Amazon, owned by the world's richest person, Jeff Bezos. So this is something that I think is a real shot across the bow. This shows that workers everywhere are capable of standing up and winning, even in the face of people who have unimaginable wealth and power and connections. And I think that this will likely, and this is what the union organizers are saying too, this will set off a wave of interest at Amazon facilities and really just workplaces all across the country in unionizing and forming a union. At the same time, there was a revote at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. The result of that vote is essentially too close to call. The preliminary result is 993 no and 875 yes votes, but there's more than 400 ballots that are contested where there's some ambiguity as to you know whether or not they're valid or legitimate or you know which way they're voting. And of course, the reason that there's a revote in Bessemer, Alabama in the first place is because of the unbelievable illegal extents that Amazon's management was willing to go to in order to sabotage that vote, to effectively rig that vote, and deny workers their right to freely choose whether or not to form a union. So this, as it stands now, even though the yes votes aren't in the lead, still represents a massive improvement over the previous vote, a a serious increase in support for the union. And depending on how these contested ballots go, it's still, you know, it's still possible that the workers would win and form a union there as well. So yeah, absolutely. a, A historic few days for the labor movement. Yesterday, Esther was the anniversary, the 54th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King. Dr. King was actually in Memphis the day he was killed to support the strike of sanitation workers. They were trying to get a union. They were trying to get a contract. There was a long strike, a bitter strike. It was mostly or maybe exclusively African-American sanitation workers. He was killed on April 4th, 1968. On April 4th, 1967, He made a historic speech at Riverside Church in New York City, and at that speech, he came out. He had started to do it a little bit before, but this was his major announcement about why he opposed the Vietnam War and why he thought the struggle for social justice had to be linked to the struggle for peace. In that speech, he said, my government, our government, is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. He also said that the struggle of the Vietnamese people was just and righteous. He sort of went at the anti-communist thrust that was used to justify the war and said, Ho Chi Minh and the National Liberation Front, yes, they're 
they're communists. You may not be a communist, but what those people are doing is trying to fight. They're fighting to be free people. They're fighting to have Vietnam be an independent country after so much you know, horrific treatment by the French colonizers and then the Japanese and then the U.S. And so Dr. King assassinated one year to the day that he made that amazing anti-war speech. And again, he was at a sanitation strike, lending the support of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, his organization, to striking sanitation workers. It shows that the struggle, and it showed that he emphasized that the fight for justice at home had to be linked to the fight for peace and against war and against militarism. He paid a heavy price for it. At the time, he was largely denounced after he made the anti-Vietnam War speech, including from by some inside the civil rights movement. But he was a, a brave soul. He was a, a courageous leader. He was a real leader. He was also a socialist, something that many people don't know. Anyway, let's remember Dr. King and also the tragedy or the awfulness of his assassination because he was a leader of the civil rights movement and assuming the leadership also of the massive peace movement, the two most dynamic mass movements taking place in the United States during that epoch. Right. So on this anniversary of his death, I mean, some people will remember that after the conviction of James O. Ray for his murder, an investigation and trial actually just two years ago would conclude that the long-held official version of the assassination was wrong. And the Memphis jury's verdict, which either received very little media coverage or coverage that kind of ridiculed it, it implicated a retired Memphis businessman and government agencies in a conspiracy to kill King. But I also want to connect the constant FBI and Hoover targeting, surveillance, and harassment that King received to the speech that you just mentioned that he gave exactly one year before he was killed. And that was his famous Beyond Vietnam speech at Riverside Church in which he connected this country's failure to provide human rights to Black people and all poor people in this country to the attack and war on the people of Vietnam, where we would kill as many as... 3 million men, women, and children, in addition to the tens of thousands who survived assault, rape, and torture. So similar to how we point out today that there are billions of dollars given for Ukraine as Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean water, or you know we could not pass the many human needs addressed in the Build Back Better legislation, King saw that much of the funding to fight poverty in the 1960s were cut as more funding was given to fight the Vietnamese people and this Vietnam, what we call the Vietnam War here. And I have a couple of excerpts from his speech that I want to read and then, then hear his actual words. And he says early in the speech, quote, since I'm a preacher by calling, I suppose it is not surprising that I have seven major reasons for bringing Vietnam into the field of my moral vision. There is at the outset a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the buildup in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and eviscerated as if it were some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor so long as adventures like Vietnam continue to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. And further down, he talks about the war in Vietnam, but as a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit. And he's speaking to the clergy at that gathering as well as to the public. And he says, as long as the clergy and Americans ignore this reality, we will be fighting every new American war or intervention in a sort of silo without realizing that America was on the wrong side of the world revolution happening at that time. And so we have a clip where he talks about the symptom of a far deeper malady within American society. 
increasingly by choice or by accident, this is the role our nation has taken, the role of those who make peaceful revolution impossible by refusing to give up the privileges and the pleasures that come from the immense profits of overseas investments. I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin, we must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside. That will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. <laughs> Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hand on the world order and say of war. This way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love, a nation that continues year after year spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. So that was King delivering his Beyond Vietnam speech at Riverside Church in 1967, the year before he was assassinated. And Brian and Walter not only are we still fighting against this diversion of funds from human needs into war, the neglect of the American people has only deepened, it seems to me. And according to the Poor People's Campaign, which takes its name from King's final campaign, the poor and low wealth in this country make up half of the U.S. population. And not only are the working class disproportionately sent to die in these wars, just like they are probably been sent to Poland and places like that in Eastern Europe to, I don't know, buttress NATO forces in this current conflict. But we're also bulk of the people impacted by this pandemic in this country, which has disproportionately killed the poor and people of color. And we know the official number is approaching 1 million dead. So yesterday, the Poor People's Campaign held a press conference in action here in D.C., where they pointed these figures out. And this is a part of the organizing effort for the mass demonstration that they will have on June 18th here in Washington, D.C. And this is their way and our way of continuing the legacy of King to mobilize poor and working people in this country. Yes, Esther, I'm so glad you pointed that out. So the official poverty level is so ridiculously low and yet 37 million people are under it, one out of every four or five children, almost one out of every two African-American kids living actually officially in poverty. But what the Poor People's Campaign did in their very, very rigorous economic sort of modeling is they showed that the real poverty level, meaning the people who are either officially in poverty, which is that ridiculous number, 
or the people who are essentially in poverty, that that's about 140 million people. So if people who live in or very near poverty, people who like with one $500 unexpected, unanticipated emergency expenditure would be completely destitute and financially broken. That number is really about 140 million people. And that's a staggering number, especially when you think about how much money this government spends on militarism. And again, if you look at the past four or five weeks with the stock market, the war contractors are so excited because the war in Ukraine means they're going to be building more and more weapons. That's more and more of an excuse, more of a pretext to expand NATO. They're very, very happy. Anyway, Dr. King was murdered. I have to just, I'll say it because I've said it before. I believe that Martin Luther King, more than any other single human being in the United States, had the capacity to unite the two mass movements that were taking place simultaneously, sometimes intersecting, but largely in a parallel direction in the United States in that epic year, 1968, the year where the 60s were really at their greatest point of ferment and tumult. And there was the peace movement and the civil rights or black liberation movement, movements that literally drew in tens of millions of people each. Dr. King was situated and had become very situated after his speech in 1967 to help unite those two movements. And again, this would be a movement of the struggle for justice and equality on the home front and for peace internationally. I think Jadger Hoover, if you read the COINTELPRO documents that came out later after they were exposed in 1976, those of us who were active at that time didn't know that there was such a thing called COINTEL or counterintelligence program. It was a war waged by U.S. intelligence agencies led by the FBI in particular and J. Edgar Hoover in particular against the left and against the progressive movements for peace and social justice. Their greatest number one identified fear was that there would be someone who could unite and overcome the divisions in America so that black and white people, and of course that also meant indigenous people and Latino people, Asian American people, could be marching together And Dr. King had the stature, the capacity, the legitimacy, the credibility to provide that kind of leadership. And one year later, he was killed. Now, we can't prove that he was killed by COINTELPRO, but certainly, as you pointed out, the idea that James Earl Ray was the lone assassin, that theory has, except for the real diehards, been largely demolished as a credible concept. Walter, speaking about justice, students in the United States have a huge burden. People want to go to college. They're told you have to go to college. Sadly, not enough people are going to trade schools, which would be very important and a great gateway for employment. But anyway, people are told you have to go to college. People go to college. They think that's the way out. That's the way up. And yet there's more than one point, I think it's $1.5 trillion in student debt. Bernie Sanders became popular, demanding the cancellation of that debt. Biden seemed to be adopting that program, but he's turned his back. That's right. And the Justice Department lawyers, the Biden administration lawyers, are doing everything they can to protect the extreme legal privileges that the corporations that issue this debt, that give out these student loans, make. Right now, people cannot default on their student loan debt. With almost every other kind of debt that a person can get into, you can ultimately get that cleared by way of bankruptcy. I mean, bankruptcy is very, very bad. It has all sorts of negative repercussions on a person's finances. But in extreme cases, it's better than living with this absolutely crushing burden of debt. And yet, in the U.S. courts, you cannot eliminate your student loan debt by means of bankruptcy. People are challenging that in court. People frequently challenge that in court. And the Biden administration has ordered its lawyers to defend that practice, to show up in court and make the government's case that no, in fact, you have to keep this debt until you pay it off, even if that means being in debt for the rest of 
your life. So there was a, a public statement, a public letter written to the education department by 27 members of the Senate, essentially protesting this. I think it's an indicator of the growing public consciousness and outrage at inequality in society, and, and student debt is such a big part of that inequality. But you know, the Biden administration so far has not changed their policies. Pressure is mounting on them, and they may, but they haven't done that yet. And, and they also haven't made any movement in the direction of canceling student loan debt. That's a very popular demand. That was a big part of, for instance, the, the Bernie Sanders campaign. And millions and millions of people all across the country and their family members, they would benefit greatly from the cancellation of, of course, you know, ideally all student loan debt, or even just the idea of a $10,000 cancellation or reduction in student loan debt has also been thrown around by essentially people inside the Democratic Party as something that is, you know, quote unquote, realistic. But even that, even that insufficient reform, and this is so characteristic of the Biden administration, even that insufficient reform of $10,000 of student loan reduction appears to be not even something that's under consideration. So yeah, I mean, I think the Democrats, again, are setting them up for are setting themselves up for electoral failure, electoral disaster, because, I mean, what possible positive, compelling reason do they have to people to convince them to get out and vote for other Democrats? And so many young people reluctantly voted for Joe Biden. He was not their first choice, partly because of these, what we know now are hollow promises from the campaign trail to actually address student debt. So yesterday on April 4th, a group called the Debt Collective, they held actions here in D.C. and around the country. Basically, the theme was pick up the pen, Joe. And that means to sign an executive order around the student debt, because this is like you said, Walter, one of the things that he can do by himself. He doesn't need Congress. He doesn't need the Senate. He doesn't need 60 votes like he needed for Build Back Better. He just, or even 51 votes, right? He just needs to pick up the pen and he can do this by executive action. And the fact that he's not doing these things, yeah, it's totally, like you said, alienating a whole swath of the electorate that's increasingly a majority of the electorate that he could keep in his camp. But there seems to be more focus on making war in Ukraine than uh, meeting the needs of this vast part of the American electorate. Walter, let's turn to the big stories from Liberation News. What's on your agenda? Well, one article that I want to highlight is titled U.S. Prepares New Sanctions Targeting Ethiopia, Eritrea in Latest Destabilization Push. We've covered the No More Movement demonstrations called by the Ethiopian and Eritrean global diaspora to protest U.S. intervention in favor of the TPLF armed group in Ethiopia's civil war. These were major demonstrations that took place across the country, demanding U.S. hands off Ethiopia and Eritrea. And now there is another attack being prepared by the U.S. government. It's ironically called the Ethiopia Peace and Stabilization Act of 2022. But essentially, it is an authorization for further sanctions against the two countries, something that would make peace an even more distant prospect. So an important issue to keep track of there. Another article that I want to highlight is titled Biden's Budget Cements Turn Towards War Police. We've been talking about Biden's proposed military increase in his budget for 2023. This article talks about that and also some of the other really troubling things in this budget proposal, including a major increase of funding for the U.S. deportation machine for Border Patrol and for ICE. And finally, I want to highlight a really detailed, informative article titled Nazis in Ukraine Seeing Through the Fog of the Information War. This goes over in very close historical detail what we were talking about in terms of the present role of Nazi and neo-Nazi forces in Ukrainian politics and society and the state, and also the long history of this going back a hundred years. So this is really, I think, a, a definitive piece that helps people truly understand this phenomenon. Again, please go to liberationnews.org every day for updates about national, international, and local struggles going on everywhere. 
All right, we're going to leave it right there. We have a big week ahead of us. We'll, of course, continue to talk about Ukraine. We'll be speaking tomorrow with Richard Wolf on the big stories in the economy. We want to thank all of those who are subscribing to our show, who are patrons, who are doing their part to allow this kind of independent programming to continue. Our audience has expanded very, you know, considerably in the last two months. But again, we need more of the people who listen to the show, who rely on the show, who like the show, who want the show to continue. If you're not subscribing, do your part. Become a subscriber today. Anyway, we'll see you all or talk to you all tomorrow with Richard Wolf. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.